Good morning, everybody. So good to be together. Um, a little background about me. I am from Georgia, which, uh, yep, can I get any, any Southerners? Yeah, you can tell because they know how to talk back during a sermon. Um, so I'm asking just so that I feel a little more at home. Um, if, if, for example, during the sermon, uh, I say something you really like, uh, here's, so I make a good point, you'd be like, mm-hmm, preach, right? Um, or you might be like, that's right, that's right, kind of quiet. If I say something you don't like, you're, I don't know, preacher. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and if I say something that makes you get excited, you can be like, "Woo, amen. Um, and that would be nice if that happened. Last service, it happened once, and it was me doing it to myself. So, yeah, that tells you. But you guys watched the fight last night, I'm guessing. That's why you're here at 1030. Um, sorry about Pacquiao. Uh, it happens. <laughs> Let's pray, and we'll get started. We'll dive into today's text. Let's pray together. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you that you are good and that you love us. Thank you that you are our Redeemer and our God. Thank you that we have the opportunity to come to this place this morning as a church family and hear from your word. Lord, let this time be helpful and encouraging and challenging for each of us. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, On the social media app Twitter, People dialogue with one another about any number of things, useful, useless, doesn't matter. Um, And the way that they categorize the things they're talking about is um, using what's called a a hashtag. Uh, The hashtag looks like the pound sign. um, And you use a hashtag to categorize or describe or or sort whatever it is you've said so that people can um, contribute to the discussion or, or respond to you, see what you have to say. Some hashtags have become these staples in the Twitter universe, and they get used a lot um, for for jokes, for sarcastic irony. Um, One often used hashtag in this vein is hashtag first world problems. Hashtag first world problems. Um, A first world problem is something that frustrates us, that we find, um, you know, unsettling, upsetting, that we also recognize maybe we're being a little ridiculous being upset about it because of our position in the world. And when we take it out of our immediate context and look at it on the global scale, it's not such a big deal after all. Um, But I I thought maybe I would share some of these with you by way of uh, mutual edification this morning. Um, Some of these hashtag first world problems. And in the spirit of modern technological trends, I have crowdsourced them. So on Twitter, I have asked for EBFers to give me First world problems, and they've given me some, and I'm going to share those with you now. Um, So if you don't like these, I didn't write them. Here we go. I was late to work today because I couldn't decide which pair of shoes to wear. Hashtag first world problems. You understand how it works? While we're on the subject of shoes, I wore out my Nike basketball shoes hiking in Oregon over spring break. It was those or the Jordans. Hashtag First world problems. Here's a, here's a good one. I bent my giant new iPhone because I sat on it all day in the back pocket of my designer skinny jeans. Hashtag first world problems. Food's not off the hook. I like the donut shop three blocks from my house, but I like the one eight blocks away better. Hashtag first world problems. And last but not least, I just want to give a real shout out for this one. 
I'm looking for sermon illustrations on Twitter. Hashtag first world problems. Thank you to that kind soul. Uh, So we can laugh and we get a good chuckle out of the, the hashtag first world problems. But the truth is that these struggles make sense to us because we enjoy a certain quality of life. Uh, We enjoy a certain standard of living, a socioeconomic position in the world. Um, Like Pastor Jason said last week in the stewardship sermon, each of us is rich. Each of us is blessed beyond measure. And the dark side of this affluence, of this privilege, of this education, of this culture, is that it brings with it a tremendous amount of, of arrogance. We as Evanstonites face a unique set of challenges and struggles because of our affluence, many of which are daily going to war against our souls. It is this context that James, the brother of Jesus, enters into in James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. James turns his attention to the rich, affluent believers, to the movers and shakers in his context, offering at once a firm rebuke and also a plea for sanity. Listen to how James calls these people to a healthy perspective in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I used to be the proud uh, owner, curator of of a one-year plan, of a five-year plan, and a ten-year plan. I had my whole life mapped out year by year. Um, This included where I was going to go, when I was going to get married, where I would live, how many children I would have when I got there, and and what jobs I would have. It's a long story we don't have time for this morning, but working at a church in Evanston, Illinois, wasn't even on any plan. It was pretty far from my life goals. Um, Ten years ago, my 10-year plan did not include standing here today preaching to you. I saw my life moving in very different directions, and yet my family and I have found ourselves here. And it's it's been a tremendous blessing. We love being here. We're just now getting comfortable with where we are, which probably means change is just around the corner. But I I was a planner. I was a doer. I was a man with a, a mission for my life and a list of steps on how I was going to accomplish my biggest goals and my deepest dreams. Um, I'm a man like many women or men in this room. I'm a person coming from a successful background trying to to chart out the course for my life. Um, Odysseus was one such man. Remember Odysseus? Let's get Odysseus. Think back to your literature classes in high school, college. Odysseus, the war hero from Homer's epic poems, the Iliad, the Odyssey. Things were going all right for Odysseus, all things considered. He um, was this this great war hero from the the Trojan War. And following the war, he sets out for home, for Ithaca. Ithaca's home for Odysseus, and he's trying to get there. 
um, he wants to get home to his wife and his kid. Um, but if you, if you know the story, the, the journey takes 10 long years. Uh, don't get me wrong. Ithaca is really far from Troy. Um, according to Smithsonian Magazine, it's 565 nautical miles. Whatever that means. Sounds like a long way to me. Um, and in the year 2001, two lifelong sailors, Hal and Margaret Roth, decided that they would make Odysseus's journey in a 35-foot boat of their own. So they attempted to recreate the conditions under which Odysseus was sailing home to Ithaca. They tried to follow any aberrations that are recorded in Homer's epic. They tried to uh, account for time he would spend different places. And it took them a long time. Two years. So let's assume that the journey from Troy to Ithaca is, is a two-year sea journey. What took Odysseus so long? If you remember back to the Odyssey, you probably remember some of the challenges Odysseus faced on his journey. He angered Poseidon, the mighty sea god. Of course. He, uh, he encounters Cyclops, the one-eyed monster. He meets up with Scylla and Charybdis, the the sea creature and the whirlpool monster. And then he encounters the cannibalistic Lystragonians and many more crazy aberrations from the journey. And needless to say, Odysseus' two-year journey starts to feel like a three-hour tour. The legend holds that he was preyed on by the mythical Greek gods who constantly interrupt his journey and throw kinks into his plan. And ten long, painful hard-fought, lonely years later, Odysseus arrives home. Ten years! Our conservative boating estimate of two years, that journey has played out over ten years. Odysseus' journey was so much longer than he thought it was going to be. He had all the steps mapped out, but it took so much longer. Can some of you relate to that? The four-year journey of college has stretched on and on, quarter by quarter, semester by semester, as you change majors, as you add minors, then subtract those minors to add a different minor, and then a third minor with a concentration. Yeah, I'm not talking about Northwestern. No. Or maybe it's, maybe it's more painful. Maybe the seemingly simple nine-month process of having a child, conceiving and bearing children, stretches on and on. Bad phone call after bad phone call, prayers and prayers, and something that seems like the most natural thing in the world is, is just a source of pain and tension and frustration. And for some of us, the bad days have turned into bad weeks, into bad months, into bad years. And if you're like me, you can relate to Odysseus. The simple destination, the easy trip, has become an arduous journey. Despite our best laid plans, the journey of our lives will take many unexpected turns. Some of these are going to be joyful surprises, but some of them are going to be painful setbacks. But all of them will ultimately, not in the moment maybe, but ultimately work for God's glory and for our good. You see, our God is for us, and even the evil that we encounter, he manages to Turn that for our good and his glory. And this is why we have to hold our plans loosely as we trust in God's ultimate plan. 
Thank you. Amen. Let me read this passage again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. If you're a note-taker, you're in luck. Today's sermon has three simple points for your note-taking pleasure. The title of today's sermon is is Lord Willing, and a subtitle for the sermon might be Gospel-Centered Humility for Busy, Arrogant People. Gospel-Centered Humility for Busy, Arrogant People. And today, I just want to look at three kinds of humility we can learn from this passage in the book of James. For the sake of today's sermon, we know humility can mean a lot of things, and there are a lot of really helpful definitions. When I think about humility, I'm thinking it's self-forgetfulness. We are a selfish people, but humility calls us to self-forgetfulness, to an awareness of something outside of ourselves. And I want to look at three kinds of humility that James calls us to in this passage. Because humility doesn't happen on its own, you know? It's, it's not something you find yourself in accidentally. Nobody is accidentally humble. But with some work, I think this morning, we can learn a bit about what it looks like to be humble, what it means to be self-forgetful, but never forgetful of the knowledge that we are loved by an amazing God. If you're a note-taker, here's number one. The first kind of humility we want to look at is a God-oriented humility. The first kind of humility we want to look at is a God-oriented humility. A God-oriented humility. When we read this passage, I think, I think we can and I, I think we should see ourselves in the text. Look back at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow... We will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. I'm going to read another translation of this verse. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a university and spend four years there and matriculate and study and learn and earn a degree and then graduate and secure an entry-level consulting gig with a salary right around six figures. Then spend three years there padding our resume before making the jump into management finding a spouse, having a couple of great kids, settling down in a modestly furnished but competitively priced townhouse near the lakefront. It's the little-known Andy translated version, the ATV. And just like an ATV, it's a bumpy ride. But all of a sudden, when we put this in another perspective, we realize that Scripture is a mirror, and we hold it up to see things about ourselves. And here, we realize that we look a lot like the people James is writing to, maybe uncomfortably so. The call here goes out to the planners, to the people with the charted course for their lives. James' target audience is a crew that cares that their resume is up to date. Right? It's a crew that keeps their stock options open. They're analyzing emerging markets. They're sipping cortados and listening to NPR. There are people with first world problems. And in fact, right here, James says that they're making a five-year plan. 
They're making a, a business plan. Verse 13 says, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. They're projecting. And don't hear me wrong. The church desperately needs good businesswomen and good businessmen. In fact, some of you do this exact thing for a living. And let me be the first to say, there's nothing wrong with being an excellent and shrewd businessman or businesswoman. I would argue that you owe it to God to be the best business person you can be. This verse does not mean we shouldn't make plans. We shouldn't plan for growth and success. So then what what does it mean? I think verse 14 really helps us understand what James is getting at. Look back at your text. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. This is where we must exercise a God-oriented humility. A God-oriented humility says that God is God and that we are not. A God-oriented humility places us in the proper relation to a holy, sovereign God. It recognizes that no matter how good the intel, how sure the projections that we are a finite people with limited understanding. We are, in a sense, temporary. Scripture here describes us as mist. We are ephemeral. We are fleeting. We are here for a moment, and then we are gone. Nothing but a blip on the radar of history. But remember, God is not opposed to good business. God is not opposed to success. However, good business is bad business if it is done without considering God. Good business is bad business if it is done without considering God and his sovereign rule over all things. Good planning becomes bad planning when it is done without considering God. God is the captain of our ship. It'd be lunacy to chart our own course when we are not at the helm. It would be crazy to think I could pilot myself all the way home. And yet, more often than not, I feel more like William Ernest Henley did when he penned his poem Invictus, which ends with this famous quatrain. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You see, a God-oriented humility remembers that while we are mist, God is ocean, stretching as far as the eye can see beneath us. A God-oriented humility understands that we are mist and God is water cycle, bringing us into existence at exactly the right time. A God-oriented humility means that we are mist and God is sun, causing us to evaporate at a moment's notice, at which point it is like we are never here. See, the issue isn't that God doesn't want us to make plans for our life. The issue is the same issue that defines all of our experience as human beings on this planet. It is this. God wants relationship with you. 
See, God wants relationship with you. And he doesn't just want relationship with you on Sunday mornings at 9 or 10.30 or Wednesday nights from 6.30 to about 8.45, depending on how the leader's feeling. God wants relationship with you from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. He wants relationship with you during the graveyard shift. He wants relationship with you. And he wants relationship with your plans. He wants to be intimately involved with your life planning process. A God-oriented humility remembers our fleeting nature and God's eternal steadfastness. And it acknowledges that God desperately wants to be involved in our daily lives. It's not enough if we just come to church. And as we orient ourselves to the reality of God, we consult him through prayer, through his word, through the people he's placed around us, the Christian communities we experience in ethos communities or in our campus ministries. A God-oriented humility means that when we have failures, God has not failed. He is stable. And it means that our successes are not our own, but we offer them as worship to the God who loves us. Before we ever thought about laying plans for our life, God thought about laying the foundations of the universe. Before we ever thought about the plans that we would lay for our lives, God was busy laying the foundations of the world. And it is that God that we orient ourselves toward as we seek to experience humility. A God-oriented humility is the first step to laying hold of all God has for us, and it's the first step towards laying plans that are pleasing to God. But it is not the only step. Once we see God for who he truly is, and we see our ephemeral nature for who we truly are in contrast to his glory, we can take the second step. We can start to activate a Christ-modeled humility in our lives. This is the second kind of humility I want to call you to and that James is calling us to in this passage. A Christ-modeled humility. A Christ-modeled humility. Let's go back to the passage and add verse 15 back into the mix. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and Spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We follow in the footsteps of Christ as we pursue humility. We must follow after Christ as we pursue humility. Consider this passage from Hebrews chapter 1. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, woe, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Wow. Or, or this passage from Colossians chapter 1. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. How are we supposed to model humility after this guy? What? But here's the amazing thing about Christ. Knowing what we just learned about Jesus, Christ chose to come, to make himself nothing. That same Jesus who is upholding the universe by the word of his power right now and in whom all things hold together, the same Christ who sits at the right hand of God the Father chose to come to earth, to be born as a baby. Is there anything more humbling than having your diaper changed? He came on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost. He took the form of a servant. Although all glory belonged to him, he emptied himself. And he spent his days swinging a hammer, welcoming children, washing feet, eating and drinking with outcasts, and loving the unlovely. Consider one example from Christ's life. This is recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. This is right before Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup he speaks of is his impending death. See, Christ came to perform the ultimate act of humility. He came as God, becoming man. He came to be shamed and beaten and stripped and mocked and then nailed to a cross so that he could die in our place for our sins. This is the ultimate example of humility. But then... He rose in victory, in glory. Christ ascended. The tomb was empty, and he rose in victory over death and hell and sin and Satan and demons so that each of us has the opportunity to rise in victory. Each of us even now has the opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Right now, you can start afresh and commit your life and give your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ because God desperately desires you. Let's look back at the passage, verse 15. James sets up a contrast here as a contrast to the arrogant, godless plans we made in verse 13. James gives us a very different perspective in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This is exactly what Jesus said in the garden. 
See, Jesus knows something in Luke 22 that each of us needs to know, that nothing happens outside of the will of God. You've probably heard the expression, Lord willing. Lord willing, I will get my car back from the auto shop today before closing time. Lord willing, we will have the money we need to finish the acquisition. Lord willing, I'll get that professor or into that class. And James says, yes and. He wants to reframe the discussion to realize that Lord willing is the only way anything happens. That's why he says in verse 15, if the Lord wills, we will live. Do you know what an object lesson is? I'm preaching to you today. I was supposed to preach on February 22nd. We decided to bring in a guest preacher. I got bumped to March 8th. We decided to bring in someone different. Palm Sunday looked like it was for me. Wrong. Not for me. And here I am on May 3rd. And do you know who schedules the sermons at EBF? I do. Lord willing, here I am. And I'm so thankful that I get to preach today. But it's like God was just teaching me for months. No, no, no. My will be done, not you. See, James is calling out these people who are like us. So very much like us. While we are arrogant, planning our lives away with no thought for God, James says, you would do well to remember you're not even guaranteed tomorrow. Take a second. Your heart is pumping. Your lungs are working. Why is that? It would be so easy for it to just stop. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed five minutes from now. Lord willing, if the Lord wills, we will wake up tomorrow. Or we won't. James is reminding his audience that we are missed. We are a fragile people, completely dependent on our Heavenly Father for all that we have. And Jesus models this humility for us by becoming a man, depending on God just as we are to do. He lowers himself in humility and says to God the Father, not my will, but your will be done. This Christ-modeled humility builds on our God-oriented humility. But there's one more kind of humility James calls us to in this passage. Let's look back at the text, and I'm going to add verse 16 back into the mix, and let's see what a spirit-empowered humility might look like. We're going to look for a spirit-empowered humility. Come now, you who say, there tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So as Christians, there's an amazing thing going on in our lives. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. 
We are saved by the finished work of Jesus on the cross where he dies in our place for our sins. He was sent by God the Father and then Jesus sends the Spirit who now dwells within us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in every believer. Romans 8.14 has something really cool to say about this. Check this out. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That means us. We are led by the Spirit of God as sons and daughters of the Most High. The Holy Spirit of God is leading us even now. This is why Christianity will satisfy your soul when all other religions ultimately fail you. You see, as a stark contrast to other religions where God is distant, he's hands-off, he's disinterested. Christianity teaches that not only is God the all-powerful Father who we orient ourselves to, not only is, is God in Christ setting the example for us and dying in our place, but that God dwells within us. That is why Christianity is the only satisfactory explanation for anything you're going through. That's why all other solutions will leave you unsatisfied. This is the only way to make sense of the complications in your life, but I'm going to do you one better. You see, unlike Odysseus, who was confounded by the wicked, impish gods of Greek mythology, we have a loving, faithful God within us. The Holy Spirit is God in us, leading and loving, charting the course and comforting us in our suffering. Our God is good all the time, and he is for us. He's always for us. Father, Spirit, Son, for us, for our good. The Holy Spirit within us doesn't try to push us off course. He doesn't throw games at us. He loves us. And he leads us towards our home. As it is, we are boasting in our arrogance, James 4.16 says. I mean, arrogance is like the acceptable sin, you know? It masquerades as self-esteem or confidence. But if we're led by the Spirit, no room remains for boasting. Do you know why? Because to be led is to be vulnerable. To be led is to be vulnerable. Think back to a time that you were blindfolded. Maybe you were hitting a pinata. Maybe you were playing a game as a kid on the beach and they blindfolded you and you had to find your friends. Or imagine driving through a strange city where the buildings are unfamiliar and the street names make no sense. And someone else is giving you directions. You're completely at the mercy of something other than yourself. To be led is the truest form of humility. It acknowledges that we do not know the way forward. To be led is the truest form of humility because it acknowledges that we do not know the way forward. We are hoping, praying, banking on someone outside of the situation, and yet in the situation, knowing where we're going, what we're trying to achieve. To be led is to be vulnerable. But we can be sure, as Christians, that when our foundations are crumbling, 
when we feel lost in the wilderness, that God is with us. And that ultimately, he will get us where we are going. And sometimes we don't even know where we are going. But we submit to God's will, and we submit to God's way. A God-oriented, Christ-modeled, spirit-empowered humility is a tough sell for people like us, people like me. We like to think, like Henley, that we are the captains of our soul. We like to think, like Odysseus, that the battle is behind us and we are but two short years from home. We hesitate to say aloud the words, Lord willing, in any serious conversation because we know that that's the only way things can happen. But the amazing thing about God is that he is both guide and destination. He is both ship's captain and far-off horizon. He is both the going towards and the getting to. See, God is waiting for us, but not passively. He sent his son to make propitiation for our sins, to be our substitute. He sent his spirit to lead us, to woo us back on course when we drift off. But that spirit journey is not safe. It may take us into uncharted waters. It could mean anything, and we don't know what the future holds. But we know that God is good. And for us as Christians, the journey is as important as the destination. It is on the journey home that we learn the things God would teach us, that we bless the people God would have us bless, that we become the women and the men God is calling us to be. The poet C.P. Cavafy, in his poem Ithaca, retells the story of Odysseus through a different perspective. And the first two lines are so amazing. They say, As you set out for Ithaca, hope your road is a long one. And as Christians, we should hope our road is a long one because it is on the journey that God is sanctifying us, making us into the people he would have us be, making us into the humble, God-oriented, Christ-following, spirit-led people he would have us be. And as Christians, humility is just rules for the road. It's just the way we make it through the journey. It will not happen on its own. We are a proud people, deep in first world problems and sure of our course, driven by a subversive arrogance. But in James chapter 4, we are called to a higher way. We are called to go up by going down to learn that as we lower ourselves in the presence of a holy God, as we forget ourselves in communion with an unforgetful God, that that is what he desires from us. We must reorient ourselves to pursue humility. We must cultivate the example of Christ in our lives And we must take the hand of the Holy Spirit as we walk blindfolded at times through this world, knowing that God is good and God is for us and that our job is obedience. 
I know this is bad practice, but I think the secret to this comes a few verses earlier than our passage. In James 4.10, he writes, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, as it is, our boasting is arrogance. But as we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will exalt us by one route home or another. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you're here with us this morning. Lord, thank you for your word and the way it speaks to us and it gets under our skin and it forces us to wrestle with the things that are true about us. Thank you, God, that you are transcendently other and yet intimately involved. Thank you that you lead us by your spirit. Thank you that you've showed us the footsteps to walk in through Jesus Christ. And thank you, God, for the gift that is this church and this chance to be together this morning, to sing and to pray and to hear from your word, Lord. I pray that we would seek you every moment of every day, Lord, that it would not stop when we walk out the front door. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. And it's in Jesus' good name that we humble ourselves and pray. Amen.